2: Hi, this is Marion Bartoli.
3: I'm Mats
4: Vilander. This is Mary Carillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast.
2: Hello, folks, and welcome once again to the tennis podcast Olympics Relived, uh, where today I think we're going to be focusing on just the one Olympics, given our attempts uh, in the last episode to cover Two Olympics in one go, uh, resulting in our longest ever pod. We're pretty sure that nobody made it through right to the end, which is a shame uh, because there was some great content towards the end of that pod. And if you do, if you did make it through to the end, you're a trooper. Uh, Congratulations and thank you. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go back, (laughs) maybe treat it as a kind of two episode episode type deal uh but yeah we've been kind to you and we're uh, we're spilling them up this time and my dream of uh if olympics relived proliferating <laughs> into a full-blown sort of daily podcast situation has come true
5: hooray it was all in the planning all <laughs> along um yeah I, I did sort of think we could get two of them in one and then when we got to an hour and 50 minutes i thought I thought that sounds quite long <laughs> for us. And then, and, then, and then I discovered that Joe Rogan does a daily podcast and most of them are over three hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. One
2: if of you them build was, it, they will come, One of them is 3.58.
5: Yeah. So that's, that's the future, guys. Three hour, 58 minute podcast every day. <laughs> I
6: still day. remember last year, David, saying sometime in the future we could go daily for the whole year. That was a, those were words yeah. that came out of David's mouth last year. And
5: when I said for the, for the full year, I meant for the rest of our <laughs> lives.
2: Which now suddenly feel like they're <laughs> stretching before me, like a long, long narrow highway. Um, instead, the, the, the dream that David got was, was doing two French Opens worth of, uh, of Grand Slam dailies, five Grand Slam dailies uh, in a year. But anyway, that's for the, uh, the murky and uncertain
6: future. In a year of three Grand Slams, maximum five Grand (laughs) Slam dailies
2: ridiculous what awesome. are we all doing with ourselves we're reliving the olympics hooray and uh, today we've arrived at olympics that i can remember also hooray i mean i remember 92 a bit we were just discussing this before we started recording that i kind of i remember being aware that limford christie had won had won gold in the 100 meters because that was such a big deal um, in the uk but i don't i don't remember sitting and watching any of it whereas with atlanta i I do remember, I do remember watching bits and bobs of it. I certainly remember the bomb that went off in Atlanta prior to to the games happening. What a yeah, what a what a huge story that was. I remember it being a a real low point for team GB. <laughs> um very few golden moments for us. Or only only one gold, and I remember I remember Michael Johnson doing what Michael Johnson did. Michael Johnson, who is now one of one of my favourite uh, sporting pundits, does a lot of work for the BBC. But in terms of the biggest uh, events and stories globally at the 1996 Atlanta Games, Muhammad Ali, who actually, that's another thing I remember. Do you remember him lighting the, the yeah. torch at the opening ceremony? I'd wow. say that's the,
5: the most vivid memory I have because it was completely kept under wraps yeah. nobody knew he was doing that
2: and he hadn't and it, it, everything he was, was very rarely seen in public at that that stage wasn't he yeah
5: the lights lights were out suddenly they came on and suddenly he was there with his hand holding the olympic torch ready to light the the full olympic torch for the for the duration of the games and his hand shaking with parkinson's disease and he stood, and he managed to do it and it was it was such a moving moment
2: are you aware of that moment, Matt?
6: Obviously, you were. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yes.
2: Oh, right, okay. Uh, yeah,
6: I, yeah, I've seen that quite a lot. I
2: what never want being... to sort of throw you under the bus with how young you are.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to be the next show where the Olympics. that okay. I can remember to quote a previous relived. I am alive in nineteen ninety six. Just he's just, alive. Um, but yes, but it that's is... that's
2: a good test of sort of how iconic a moment absolutely. is, isn't it? If yeah. if you're sort of if you feel like you've you remember it, even though you weren't even alive or aware
6: of it that's what was the olympics i think it might have been soul we didn't we didn't cover this yesterday when they accidentally set the doves on fire during the lighting of the olympic flame was that soul you're both looking at me with blank expressions and i'm concerned i've made this up but i'm sure what you've got to
2: do now matt is keep talking while i google
6: (laughs) i'm sure i'm sure that they used to release doves as some kind of you know, like a symbol of peace, and then in South Korea they released them too early, and they were sort of perched on the Great Olympic Torch, and then they, and then they, they lit oh it. Oh my God! And, there's a video, and it became, it became oh. like a kind of barbecue of, <laughs> <laughs> of the doves, and then I think since then they haven't, um, <laughs> they haven't released. Oh my doves. God!
2: This is absolutely harrowing. Is it
6: like fireballs? Oh my god! They you know, just—they they're, just sort of sit. They're there, burning they?
2: alive before
6: my eyes. It is soul, right? Oh no! It's soul. Nineteen nice eighty-eight. Wikipedia says
2: live doves were released during the opening ceremony as a symbol of world peace, but a number of the doves were burned alive or suffered major trauma by the lighting of the <laughs> Olympic cauldron. These were also the last Summer so- Olympic Games to hold the Olympic ceremony during daytime. Presumably so the future an, a, dove burnings which would be hidden by the cloak of darkness.
5: We have an explicit tag on the podcast. Do we have a, an 18 <laughs> certificate? Yeah, so, I mean, those <laughs> are the
6: two opening <laughs> ceremony, before my time, cut through moments. Doves burning and Muhammad Ali. Right. What else you got for Staying us, Staying on the
2: subject of Muhammad Ali, he, in 1996 in Atlanta, was presented with a replacement gold for the one he threw into a river in a rage after the 1960 Games. Not sure what the rage was about, but yes, that that, sound, that sounds like a, a story that perhaps uh, warrants further excavation. Uh, Lai Shan Li won windsurfing gold for Hong Kong, the city's first ever medal, and its last ever Olympics before becoming part of China. Uh, Lao's Sirivan Ketevong finished the marathon in 3 hours 25, an hour after the winner. Her name did not feature in the final results as the sheet was finalised and sent 24, 20 minutes before she crossed the line. Imagine doing a marathon in 3 hours 25 minutes and people just going, oh, that doesn't even count. <laughs> you, you might as well not have bothered um, Jackie joyner cursey was pictured weeping in her husband's arms after aggravating an old injury, which prevented her from competing in her swan song. Do you remember that, David?
5: Yeah, oh yeah, those extraordinary moments. So, there was so, so many vivid moments like that. I mean, it was it was a games that was not popular with mm. a lot of people for a lot of reasons, and we'll, we'll come onto those. But I mean, some of the actual iconic. Track and field moments, in particular, there, there were many.
2: Um, Carl Lewis won his fourth consecutive long jump gold and his ninth overall. And um, as I referenced in in one of my memories of the games, Michael Johnson took groundbreaking golds in both the two hundred and four hundred meters. And it was the it was the way he did it, wasn't it? His completely iconic upright style of running um, just kind of sticks with you. I think he set world records in both. And I remember I've just got this image of my head of him standing as they do with the um, with the clock displaying their their world record time. It was kind of it was a it was a precursor to Usain Bolt type stuff, wasn't it? He was so far ahead of the field. There was a gap between him and the other the other races bigger than should be possible in a race that short. He he he,
5: he felt unbeatable. Mm. Mm.
2: Uh, So in terms of what was happening uh, in tennis at that Olympics... Um, so it was the third third Olympics uh, that since tennis had returned. It was the first time since the 1924 Olympics that a single bronze medal was awarded in each event. So they introduced the playoff for the bronze. Mary Jo Fernandez and Gigi Fernandez won their second consecutive doubles gold medal together. The Williams sisters have also won consecutive women's doubles gold medals. This was the only Olympic Games which Agassi played. He was the top seed and he ended up winning the gold by beating Sergi Bruguera 6-2, 6-3, 6-1. So that's a, a 100% Olympic record for Andre Agassi. Not bad. Um, I remember this. Tim Hemman and Neil Broad won men's double silver, losing to Mark Woodford and Todd Woodbridge. Neil Broad is just the perennial tennis quiz question answer, isn't he? With whom did Tim Henman win uh, an Olympic medal in 96? Um, and it was the first British medal in tennis since the sport was reintroduced. So it was gold for Agassi, silver for Sergio Bruguera and bronze for Leander Pays. We'll be hearing from both Bruguera and Pays in the uh, in the women's. It was gold for Lindsay Davenport, who we'll be hearing from Arantia Sanchez, Vicario, the silver and Jan and Avotna, the bronze. As I said, uh, the Woody's got the gold in the men's doubles, Broad and Henman and then Golner and Prinasil the bronze, and then uh, Fernandez Fernandez the gold in the women's doubles, beating Jana Novotna, Helena Sukova, and Arancha uh, Sanchez Vicario, and uh, Conchita Martinez won the bronze. So, Gigi Fernandez is a really interesting one here because we heard from her yesterday talking about her win in Barcelona in 1992 in the women's doubles alongside Mary Jo Fernandez and. What a great experience that was for her, but one that's kind of been tainted over the years, and particularly tainted in in the past four years, I suppose. Since since Monica Puig won won her gold in in Rio and was heralded as the first ever Puerto Rican gold medalist, something that Gigi Fernandez doesn't begrudge her at all. She's she said she was delighted to see her win that gold, but she does begrudge that narrative around her being the first Puerto Rican gold medalist because she believes that, that that title belongs to her. Now, at the 1996 Olympics, she had a completely different experience. And it's it's fascinating to hear about. We're going to hear about it now because although <clears throat> at that Games, as we said, same outcome for her and Mary Joe Fernandez a gold medal, it was a completely different experience for her.
0: All I remember about that Olympics is being stressed out. It was very stressful. The whole thing was stressful. Like the where, from where we stayed, I did not stay in the village. Um, it, it was too far away from where the tennis was being held. Um, we, I had some personal issues going on. I had issues with the rest of the team. And it was, you know, I had just gotten, I don't know, it's probably too much information, but I just got kicked out of the Fed Cup team in July, a the month before, and it was the same team. So uh, it was not a happy occasion that Olympic. Um, and plus, it was a lot of pressure to defend. Um, so I don't have great memories of that one. And also, um, we played after the men's final. The final, the women's final was for the men's final. And under Agassi who won the gold medal. And then literally the stadium emptied out. There must have been fifteen hundred people and a ten thousand. Person stadium so so the atmosphere wasn't there compared to the barcelona one and then we were playing Yana and helena and Yana was hurt and that's always always pressure when you're playing someone who's hurt because it's like god forbid you lose to so the person who's hurt right so so yeah i don't have great memories of that one
2: did, did you feel a bit aggrieved that the stadium emptied out that way you know two two you got reigning gold gold medalists representing the united states at home you know, you de- know, so. deserved deserved a better crowd.
0: It, that, yeah, we did, but that's American fans for you. You know, that's how it that's how it's always been here. Like, um, I think we're the only country where you can be playing uh, you can be playing someone from a different country, and they're rooting for the other person. That only happens in the United States. <laughs>
2: It's funny. I've, so, <laughs> I've spoken to a lot of a lot of people that have achieved things at the Olympics over, over the last few days, and, and almost all of them talk about sort of riding this joyful Olympic wave to to a medal. So it's really interesting hearing you talk about that that not being a happy a happy experience. No, yeah,
0: not not the second one, but I think it was really stemming from the fact that I had just been kicked out of the pickup team in July for a long story that I won't go into, but, um, and it was the same team. It was Monica Sellers, Lindsay Davenport, Billy Jean was the captain and then myself. And then Mary Jo was not at the Fed Cup. So I, so Mary Jo was fine. Her and I were fine, but the whole rest of the team wasn't talking to me. So, um, it was, and now we're all fine. Now we're all friends. Everybody's kind of put everything aside, but, um,
2: that must've yeah, been, must been quite a lonely experience
0: yeah it was that's why I keep that's why i was I'm saying it was not my favorite because of all that that was going on and um you know and also uh there was a lot you know at the time I, Conchita Martinez was my girlfriend, and there was a lot of stress about that because she was obviously playing for Spaniards and I'm playing for the Americans and we're not you know we're in opposite camps and we're on opposite side of the village we're not staying together we're gonna to compete against each other so There was all that going on as well. So pretty stressful.
2: Is it true that you have a a license plate that says double gold? I did.
0: I don't have it anymore. I had it um, when I was still playing, like after I won the second medal, I think. um, I got that license plate, but I haven't had it for 20 years I had it in a car when I lived in California
2: where is it now I I doubt there's many other people that (laughs) that could use that license plate (laughs) I don't know where it is I
0: I should have saved it but it's disappeared I've moved 14 times in the last 25 years so I I threw it out in a move or it disappeared in a move
2: someone somewhere is driving around with that (laughs) with that license plate a total fraud Um, unless it's Serena Williams maybe um where are your medals now where do you keep them?
0: They're in a sip, they're in a ziploc bag and the bag that I flew on yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> because I just came back. But they're usually I have um on my on my uh living room I have like a little trophy case area and they they sit on top of a picture of each one of the when I was sitting in the podium. So that's a good memory.
2: A ziploc bag. Again, not yeah. about her person the, 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 at all the,
5: times. St- the, there's so many stories, aren't there, about what, where people had their Olympic medals? And actually, just reading up that Muhammad Ali, when he won his gold medal in 1960, he actually said in his autobiography in 1975 that he didn't take the medal off for 48 hours, even wore it to bed, didn't sleep very well because he had to sleep on his back so the medal wouldn't cut him. This is but, what I'm talking uh, about. He didn't care. He was the Olympic champion. And, and actually, just to complete that story on on why he ended up throwing his, his gold medal that obviously meant so much to him into the river, he said in that autobiography that he came back to Louisville after the Olympics with his shiny gold medal, went into a restaurant where black people couldn't eat, weren't allowed to eat. Um, and he says, I thought I'd put them on the spot. I sat down and asked for a meal. The Olympic champion wearing his gold medal. He was wearing his gold medal into this into this establishment. And he was told, we don't serve black people here. And he said, it's okay, I don't eat them. But he was thrown out and he said so i went down to the river and i threw my gold medal in it wow
2: that's extraordinary
6: he was mm. such a force
2: also the yeah. best comeback quip mm. of all time
5: yeah and and in 1996 that was their way of at least doing mm. something to to recognize that discrimination and try to put some of it right in uh in in the atlanta olympics and um and to to give him his gold medal back
2: goodness me okay Uh, should we do 1960 olympics relived (laughs) is that what you're is that what you're pitching to me
5: yeah tennis suddenly feels a bit narrow (laughs) doesn't it olympics wise (laughs)
2: um it, it, that, I found that fascinating. For, I mean, the whole chat with Gigi Fernandez was was fascinating, but the contrast there of her, you know that was her winning a second consecutive gold medal. That's not something that happens very often in any sport, let alone in in tennis. And she almost sounded a bit sort of uncomfortable reliving it, which is extraordinary. She doesn't she doesn't have happy memories of of that week winning it, winning a gold medal
5: no it sounds it sounds as though she's full of anxiety really when when talking about that and it, and to some degree the 92 one as well because there is so much to it that she has to unpack i was
6: very intrigued by what she said about the fake cup so i i did a little digging of course he did <laughs> and the 1995 fed cup final was against spain and then the 1996 semi-final was against japan in july just a couple of weeks before this atlanta olympics and basically it sounds to me like um billy jean king who was the fed cup captain and gigi fernandez had a falling out sounds like they're okay now but they had a falling out at the time and just to read from the new york times the pivotal King Fernandez blow-up came in July in Japan during the Fed Cup semi-finals when Fernandez discovered that King had hired a male hitting partner with whom she happened to be in litigation. She threatened to quit the squad and King threatened to let her walk. Although they simmered down, the truce was short-lived and on the Saturday, the first day of the semi-final, Fernandez again complained about the hitting partner and King threw her off the team. King said the ouster was not only necessary, but also anything but sudden. We had problems last year in the final at Spain, and I hung in there, but it's created a tension. This is not a recent thing. I have no misgivings about the decision. It's better for everyone. It's not just because of Gigi's temperament. I can handle hotheads. I was a hothead myself. There are a lot of variables here. And then Fernandez said, I was told that I have disruptive behavior, that I'm not a team player, and I create tension so to go from that environment to playing alongside everyone in the olympics when it's supposed to be this joyous occasion when you're all in it together you can absolutely understand with that context why this was a very very uncomfortable time for gigi fernandez
2: crikey that's a heck of a backstory and it it just yeah i mean i can't imagine sort of being at the Olympics I mean obviously for the majority of people uh, the majority of the time it's obviously this wonderful galvanizing unique joyful experience and imagine being at the Olympics and not feeling all the things that you're supposed to be feeling it's almost like that's how I remember feeling at university like why am I not having a good time why am I the only person here that's not having a good time is there something wrong with with me um, it just sounds sounds really lonely. And look, I don't know the rights and wrongs of. I mean, that sounds like a really messy situation. Mm. I cannot imagine the soul destroying horror of falling out with Billie Jean King. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know the the details of that and the various sides of the story. It wasn't something that Gigi wanted to to go into, but it just sounds so lonely. And yet, she still won a gold medal in an event where she she. She had to partner someone and I know Mary Jo Fernandez kind of stayed out of the whole Fed Cup situation, but she was still very much part of that Fed Cup team and she would have had allegiances within it, you know. So I don't know, I find that extraordinary that she was still able to win gold in those circumstances, kind of without that most people... That win gold and win medals at the Olympics. The kind of Olympic joy and the Olympic feeling is a contributing factor to their success. And for her, it was the lack of that was a detracting factor. And yet, she still achieved the ultimate. I I find that extraordinary. And it's,
5: it's why I love us doing these shows and speaking to this many different people because there is no single experience here. We've heard so many already, and. Hers, yeah, it does leave you with a discord when you uh, when you consider the enormity of what she achieved and yet the feelings that she's got from it all. Um, absolutely fascinating.
2: Um, in terms of the, the women's singles, I said there that, that Lindsay Davenport was the, the gold medalist. Now, we're we're going to hear from her now. I did this interview a few weeks ago and you can just tell instantly from the tone of her voice that her experience was just completely different and we've talked we've talked a lot already and I'm sure we'll talk more about how people's feelings about their Olympic achievements evolve over time and what you'll hear from Lindsay now is the fact that (laughs) I still think it's still kind of sinking in for her let's hear
4: from her it's kind of one of these these things that I look back of and it's still like I can't it was that me like I (laughs) don't even it doesn't seem like it was real I had just turned 20 years old I was a very, very good junior player. I made the transition to the pro tour pretty well, but I kind of liked hanging out between eight and 16 in the rankings. You know, I, I was very insecure. I was very um, unsure of, of really what could I do. And so I liked doing well, but I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do too well because it seemed really overwhelming to be one of those top players. Um, I, I, wanted to go to college, but honestly, I I was too good. I think I was in the top 10 at 17 or 18. So kind of couldn't really hang back and go to college. So here I go at 20 years old to Atlanta for two or three weeks in a setting that seems so comfortable. Look at all these athletes. You know, you have all different shapes and sizes. You have players that are really working hard, but have so much in common and you get to hang out with them, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner in the village. You are sharing this with your teammates who are some of my best friends and Mary Joe Fernandez, Monica Sellis. Um It was the best time ever, especially the week leading into the play. And so by the time that the tournament actually started, it was like, Oh yeah, I'll go play my match and then we'll go back to the village and we'll hang out. And everything went so fast in those few weeks. And there I was left standing um, winning at the end because I was so incredibly happy and excited with everything that was going on. I kind of forgot what was I, what was my job? And tennis wasn't, you know, on the covers of all the papers, there's all these other sports. Um, So it seemed like a perfect fit for me at that, that summer of 96.
2: Where does it rank for you among your achievements? Where does it sit amongst the Grand Slam titles?
4: It very, um, it kind of is almost tied with the US Open. I, I kind of put the US Open a little ahead because when I was growing up, you know, tennis wasn't the metal sport. So I... You know, always dreamed of winning the U.S. Open. If I could ever allow myself to kind of dream that big, my dad was an Olympian in 1984 when I was eight. The Olympics were in Los Angeles, where we lived, and both my parents worked uh, different events, the volleyball event for the Olympics. And I had an older sister, sixteen years older, who would take me around all the sports and kind of taught me everything about the Olympics. And so it was like a huge dream of mine. So then, when it became a reality of even just making the team in '96. It was so uh, kind of huge for also my family and my dad as well and having a second generation Olympian. So um, it it was it's very, very, very high. My kids actually my mom has been cleaning out her her house and she found this big box of Olympic memorabilia, I think, from the 2000 games. And my kids have been like wearing it around.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing.
4: It's so funny.
2: Another lovely little story of what people have done with the Olympic memorabilia. I mean, you can hear the joy in her voice, can't you? And it, I also found it interesting her talking about the fact that because tennis had only returned to the Olympics eight years previously, it wasn't something she'd been able to really dream of and aspire to. But it. she 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 puts the Olympics, I, I think, reading between the lines there, she puts that gold medal ahead of her Wimbledon title. I mean, that's something.
5: mm there's a, a look. I've just watched the uh, the match point uh, against the Rancho Sanchez Vicario, and there's a look of utter disbelief <laughs> at the time, ecstasy um, on her face. And you know, I also think it's it's an interview we'll, we'll play for you in full in a in a in a week or two's time. That one you did with Lindsay. There's something about her that is not presumptuous. Mm-hmm. She yes, she knows she recognised how good she was and that she wasn't going to be allowed to live a normal life because of her extreme talents it was it would have been too much of a waste but she never had such self-belief that she could just assume that this is what happens and 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 actually feel okay with it really I, I think all the way through her career she had to sort of shove herself in the direction of what you're supposed to do when you're a champion because it wasn't natural to her to to be the alpha to be the the one that everybody looks at and um and I I mean I find her very very nice to talk to very nice to listen to um and very relatable
6: and we talk about how everyone has their own personal experience of the olympics it strikes me that lindsay davenport's character at that time she alluded to it there not necessarily being comfortable with the spotlight the olympic environment I can imagine that someone like her would really thrive in that environment where there is there is a team element to it. There's a lot more going on. There's not the sole focus of the media or, you know, on the tennis. And I think she's an interesting case because she won the Olympics relatively young in her career and then went on to have even better Grand Slam results. It was a platform for her to go on to do more in a way that for some players... You know, we talked about Macher and Rosset yesterday. It wasn't for them, but but for Davenport, it was. Um, and I think also that year, 96, she just started working with uh, Robert Van Toff, who would be her coach for a long time and kind of completely transformed her training regime and her diet as well and just became a much, much better player and athlete in in 1996 and kind of realised realized okay she knew what she was capable of but this was the first time that she actually realized that potential and achieved really really big
2: and at this stage the three olympic women's champions have been 18 year old steffi graf 16 year old jennifer capriati and 20 year old Lindsay davenport it's a young wow, women's yeah. game olympic golds
5: yeah and, and and in a way i think Tennis at the Olympics is a career launcher and a career definer for so many players. For 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 many of them. I mean look, some of the great well known champions that we've ever known have won Olympic gold as well, Nadal and and Serena and Venus Williams, but and Steffi Graf. But many of them are players that just couldn't quite get it done at the Grand Slam levels but found something else at the Olympics and that's what what we've loved about it and in Lindsay Davenport's case I mean it I I can't remember exactly what the gap is between her winning that Olympic gold in 96 and her winning her first slam but she was young in 96 I mean I remember Following the sport, and that came out of nowhere to me. I knew of Lindsay Davenport as a big hitter, but she was never in the conversation at that point as somebody you would expect is going to win one of these titles. And so, she beat Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. I mean, that's that's a top player who she's who she's beaten, and yeah, rode that crest of the it wave. Was,
2: it was another two years before she won uh, before she won her first Slam at the um, at the ninety eight U S Open. Um, in terms of the men's, as I said, Andre Agassi won the gold, just rocked up, thought, oh, playing Olympics, won gold, and then retired from the Olympics. <laughs> um, he beat Sergi Bruguera in the final, who's also uh, somebody that we've spoken to. Let's hear from him about where that silver medal ranks among his career achievements.
3: Well, this is very, 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 very important. Uh, obviously, the two French Opens is, is uh, the biggest one. And then you know uh, probably maybe the silver medal is 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 um, is behind this because for me the Olympics is one thing that since I'm uh, a kid you know four years old I'm watching always uh, the Olympics I love the sports I love the Olympics I think you know the Olympics is the the biggest by far even in the sports and um, to to be already. The chance to play was um, unbelievable, and to have one silver medal for me is one of the my um, highest achievement by far uh, that I make in tennis.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
5: Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right.
2: Some people question the inclusion of tennis in the Olympics. What What would you say to that?
3: well i think i think tennis is one of the biggest sports in in the world and uh, i think it deserves to be in the in the athletics because every time the, the, the sports are you know new and completely um that popular and the people like it i think it's nice to include it on in the olympics because if not the olympics will will stay you know with track and field like 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 usually you know no 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 new don't no, you cannot play the, the 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 basket also you cannot play the different things that the, the sports that they, uh, came to to the to the olympic games and you know i think i, I love to play uh, the Olympic Games. I think that the, all, all the tennis players also, and I think it's one sport more in in, in the Olympic. Doesn't doesn't hurt anybody.
2: No, it doesn't hurt anybody, Sergi. Well said. It's interesting. I, I remember just now while I was listening to that that Sergi's hero uh, was Miroslav Machir. I remember him waxing lyrical once uh, the Royal Albert Hall about how much he loved Miroslav Machir, And uh, yeah, presumably he would have, I wish I'd asked him about it now, but presumably he would have watched Machir win, win his gold in, in 88. And and uh, I assume that was significant for him.
5: Although I would say to me, Machir's gold feels bigger now than it did mm. back then. When you see it on a list and the Olympics has become more significant for tennis, seeing him on that list and, and actually seeing the reaction he had because he was so overjoyed and overwhelmed. But in a wider scale, all our eyes were not on the Olympic tennis events. They were on the other tennis, the other sports. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I think it's grown in that way. The Agassiz story is one that fascinates me because, I mean, I was in the middle of my not liking Andre Agassiz phase at that time um, because I was a Pete Sampras fan. And this is pre-me pre, pre me getting involved in we tennis. We know it well. Um, yeah. And, and in 95, Agassi had had one of the great years. Won the Australian Open... Won all the summer events. I mean, he 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 won everything. He won Canada. He won Cincinnati. He got to the U.S. Open final, lost to Sampras—a match that he really thought he was going to win—and he was never never really the same again until '99, when he when he won the French Open. And in '96, although he was play, capable of playing good tennis, he, his motivation clearly was not there generally versus the, the year before. But the Olympics is what got him motivated that's the only event that he really seemed fired up for and when he went to the to the olympics he looked like a man possessed and i don't see how anybody could have stopped him quite honestly i watched all of those well the quarters semis and the final and agash he was absolutely awesome that that year
2: and it's it's that thing again of. Losing a, a silver medal and winning a bronze. Well, actually, I say again, this is this is the first Olympics actually where that came to prominence because it was the first Olympics, uh, as I said at the top, where where you there was a playoff for the bronze medal. We're going to hear from um, from Leander Pays now that Matt has formed a, a beautiful, beautiful friendship with WhatsApp buddies. Matt. Yeah. He he, he wants to be. <laughs> he, he he certainly wants yeah, to be.
6: Yeah. He he wants to go out for tea. <laughs> I, I didn't have the heart to tell him I don't drink tea.
2: <laughs> Did you lie and say yeah? That sounds great.
5: Yeah. <laughs> no, because he wants to. He just just can we just change the drinks? Yeah. All right. <laughs> what What are you having? What are you having? Matt?
6: Uh Well, coffee these days. You've you you have coffee. Yeah, you now? know this, David.
2: I've I've so tea's not. I've far made off. him a cappuccino with my with my own fair hands. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, so, Sergio Bugarra the the silver medal medal winner and look he sounds chuffed with that doesn't he he's happy with the silver medal <laughs> but we're going to hear now from from Leander Pays Matt's bestie, who won who, the gold uh, who won the sorry won the bronze at a, at that olympics go, yeah. go ahead matt well
6: i was going to say until i'd spoken to leander pays you were the most enthusiastic person i knew about the olympics <laughs> and it's possible that leander pays he's, has slightly usurped you is he in, out olympics to me i think he has the whole time i was doing this he's interview, got a
2: medal i can't compete with that
6: the whole time i was doing this interview i was imagining leander pays's house and just thinking that it must be some kind of olympic museum like he must <laughs> he, it's like he lives in the olympic museum he, he lives and breathes and thinks about the olympics we were kind of alerted to the fact that well i was alerted to the fact that he would be an interesting person to talk to, just going on his Twitter profile, and he's got O L Y after his name, and his and his picture is of the Atlanta medal ceremony. And you know, this is a guy who's won loads and loads of Grand Slams in doubles, but it's well, as you're here, the the bronze medal in the
7: Olympics is uh, is what he thinks about most, I think, in life. Let's hear it. My dad uh, won a a bronze medal in the 1972 Munich Olympics in field hockey. So. Tennis was very, very much my dream to covet an Olympic medal because as a young boy of the age of seven, eight, nine years old, 10 years old, I used to polish my father's Olympic medal (laughs) every Sunday. And uh, as a young boy, I was not very talented at tennis. I was more talented at football. And uh, I was selected for a junior European football academy, uh, which I used to sleep with my football boots. I used to polish them myself. I used to walk around my school and walk around, you know, in in regular daily life with the football at the end of my feet, juggling it nonstop all day. Football was my passion, you know, and uh, I had to give up my passion at the age of 12 because I realized that India was not going to make the Olympics in football, you know. And in the 80s and in the early to mid 80s, um, I had to change my profession from football to an individual sport where I thought I could get to the Olympics and win. And uh, in 1986, when I realized that the Olympics was coming into uh, tennis, I uh, switched over to uh, tennis uh, so that I could make it to the Olympics and try and emulate my father.
6: Wow. So the Olympics are the very reason you are a tennis player.
7: 100%.
6: Wow, (laughs) that's incredible.
7: The Olympics has been a bit of a karmic journey in my life. And I'm very humbled by uh, the the fact that I get to uh, uh, create dreams for 1.3 billion plus Indians and prove that with a lot of hard work and belief in yourself, even you can be an Olympic champion, you know.
6: And the culmination of that lifelong journey for you was winning a bronze medal in singles in Atlanta in 1996. What are your memories of that run?
7: Man, I have to go back to my journey as a young boy to win Junior Wimbledon and the US Open, be number one in the world. Then took me to 1992 when I had to qualify and earn my playing jersey in the Olympics in Barcelona. I went off to Osaka, Japan, and in a monsoon uh, climate in Osaka, on a surface that was alien to me on clay, I had to qualify for the Barcelona Olympics in singles. And uh, once I did that and came back, Ramesh, Krishnan, and myself played doubles in the Barcelona Olympics, and uh, we almost won a medal there. Because also, mate, if you remember, in both Seoul and in Barcelona, there were four medals given out. Mm-hmm. There was a gold medal, a silver medal, and two bronze medals for the semi finalists. And in the quarterfinals in Barcelona, after beating Woodbridge and uh, Fitzgerald, the top seeds in doubles, after beating the Spaniards, Casals and Sanchez, the local favorite in doubles, Ramesh Krishnan and myself lost to Ivan and Pirpic in four tight sets. And that was in the quarterfinals to play in the semis, which was a guaranteed medal. And I came one shot there. And I remember after that match, I sat back on my bench so heartbroken that I'd lost my chance to win a medal. That I put my body, my soul, my mind into the Atlanta Olympics. And for four years, even though I had prepared from a five-year-old kid, for four years, I specifically focused on playing at Stone Mountain. And I knew that Ramesh Krishnan was retiring before the next Olympics. I knew he was going to retire before uh, Atlanta. There was no other Indian kid on the horizon to play doubles. And I put my sole focus into singles. So I actually went off to far off places in Latin America to play in the same playing conditions as Stone Mountain, which had altitude. Stone Mountain, we were playing at about 780 meters above sea level which was altitude i knew that servant volley tennis would uh, would prevail so in that i played off in bela horizonte in brazil i played in quito ecuador i played in Medellin, colombia i played in bogota i played in places that had altitude and if you look at my history in 1996 i actually missed a lot of the grass court season and skipped wimbledon it's the only time I've skipped Wimbledon to go and play and prepare for Atlanta. So really the single-minded focus uh, was so uh, relevant that when most people are surprised that I won a medal in Atlanta, my team was not because they know how much hard work and effort I had silently focused into performing in singles in Atlanta. The funny part is when I actually got to Atlanta and after the opening ceremony, on the Saturday before the, the tournament started and the draw came out, I was drawn to play Pete Sampras. <laughs> and the whole uh, Indian contingent and my team uh, looked at me and my captain actually, Jaideep Mukherjee at the time, of our, the captain of the Olympic contingent of India, he t- tapped me on the back when we all saw the draw and he said, tough luck, son. You're going to have to prepare one more time. And I smiled at him as I gently do when people give me a no. I've had no's my whole life, mate. I've had a hundred doctors tell me I would never be an athlete because I have a heart disease as a young boy. I've had uh, many doctors tell me that I wouldn't be a a great athlete because I had Oshkut Slaughter's disease in my right knee because of all kicking off the football when I was an 11-year-old kid. So my whole life, mate, I've had people tell me, no, 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 no. I actually love it. I love it when someone tells me no. So when I saw that draw and my captain kind of instigated me by tapping me on the back, I just felt that there was some magic there and sampras didn't play that olympics for some personal reasons of clothing branding or something like that and richie Renneberg came in i beat richie Renneberg because he defaulted in the third set because he could not handle the altitude conditions i lost the first set six seven i won the second set seven six and at I think it was 1-2. I was up a break in the third, if I'm not mistaken. He uh, pulled out of the tournament because he could not breathe in that altitude. And after I won that first round, something told me that the hard work was going to pay off. Just look at the karmic journey there, right? You're drawn to play Pete Sampras. You take four years to work your your tail off to prepare for this. Pete Sampras pulls out of the draw. Richie Renneberg comes in. You work hard. 6-7, 7-6, 2-1, up a break. He retires. Then you beat... Nicolas Pereira, who was number one in the world in the juniors in 1989, the year before I was. Then you beat in the third round, Thomas Enquist, who was number one in the world in the juniors in 1991, the year after I was. Then you come up against Lorenzo Renzo and beat him on pure servant volley tennis, 6-2-7-5. And then you play the mighty Andre Agassi, one of my best friends on tour. And both of us have an uncanny history with the Olympics because his father was a boxer. Uh, for for Iran, if I'm not mistaken, back then, and my dad was an Olympic champion in in field hockey for, in '72 in Munich, and we played each other, and I had two set points against him in the semis, and uh, he uh, uh, hit a passing shot at five, six, fifteen, forty in the first set, uh, where we both knew that whoever won that first set was generally going to be in the driver's seat because fast-paced tennis. Altitude tennis. Whoever wins the first set is going to be even more aggressive. Uh, it was going to benefit. And at 5 6 15, 40, he hit a passing shot uh, at my face. And uh, I had to hit the, the volley in an awkward position. My right wrist was in a vulnerable position. And he ruptured tendons in my wrist. And uh, the, the, the Dougie Spreen, the, the tournament uh, physiotherapist, came on. And he said, Lee, you've got ruptured tendons in your wrist. You need to stop. You're going to jeopardize the rest of your career. And I basically turned to him in the heat of the moment, as as crazy as we athletes are, and said to him, strap me up and let me back out. This is my chance to win an Olympic medal. Well, I didn't get the chance that afternoon because I guess he saved the, the second uh, set point and won the tiebreak in the first set, 7-6, and then beat me, I think, 6-3 in the second. I was playing with that uh, ruptured uh, mm-hmm. wrist tendons. And then I had to go into a hard cast for 24 hours because there was a break between the semifinals and the bronze medal match. I was the first Olympics, unfortunately for me, that you had to have a playoff for the medal. Mm. So I really had to earn it. And with that ruptured wrist, I had to come out and play one of my best friends from Brazil, Fernando Melengeni. After losing the first set, I just found... It was just mind over matter, you know, that day. I just found a, a, a mental space somewhere deep inside me to overcome that injury and overcome South southpaw, left-handed, unorthodox baseline tennis. And uh, when that last ball flew over my head beyond the baseline, uh, I had my hands up in the air, and most people thought it was in jubilation. But it was just in relief of literally 20 hard years of a lot of effort, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of single minded focus to eventually emulate my father and win a medal for one point three billion Indians
6: that's a really extraordinary tale of as you said this this sense that there was something in the air and there was a sense mm. of destiny and a journey behind it where does it mm. Where does it rank in your in your career that bronze medal at the ninety six olympics i number noticed one. I noticed that it's your background picture on your twitter account number one you say.
7: Number one, because uh, my second uh, uh, rank of anything that's happened in my career is the fact that my parents conceived me in 72 in Munich. And that was during the four days that the Munich Olympics were shut down because the Palestinian-Israeli troubles. Um, I guess my parents had nothing else better to do. (laughs) So I was born on June 17th, 1973. So I I was an Olympic baby. So what better than to go and win an Olympic medal, right? It just justifies the reason you're born. And then to now hold the uh, record for the seven Olympics, the world record for the most number of Olympics played by a tennis player, um, just makes it even more worthwhile, I think.
6: And what was the reception like in India when you returned home with a medal?
7: Just complete nuts. Uh, Meeting the president of India, meeting the prime minister of India, the... uh, the uh, ticker parade at the airport when I landed back uh, with my, my arm in a sling, uh, meeting the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, uh, I mean, millions of people uh, in the streets of, 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 you know, when I landed back in New Delhi in the capital and also in Calcutta, the millions of people in the streets was just, uh, for a young man of, of you know, of, of a young age, I was, what, 23 at the time uh you know it, it really gave me a sense of of pride it gave me a sense of how blessed i am to have a vehicle like tennis and have a movement like the olympics that in my own little way i can give people a reason to dream give people a reason to believe in a country like india um you know which is which is still uh, Uh, considered such an emerging uh, world you know such an opportune world especially now in 2020 25 years after my olympic medal to still be giving a people a reason to dream and a reason to believe in themselves that they can be champions too why because i can i've proven that
6: and can you talk about your attempts to win another medal specifically in in doubles you've you've come so close um i mean you've talked about the joy and the relief and the jubilation of winning a bronze how does how painful is it to come forth
7: my doubles uh uh, medal opportunities in the olympics have been real heartbreakers in uh, 92 in my first olympics in barcelona coming literally one set shy of winning an olympic medal first can you imagine if I hadn't won a singles medal in Atlanta, what that would have meant to me? Um, coming back from winning Wimbledon in the summer of 2003 with Lova through the rest of the year, I won Wimbledon on Sunday, May. On Monday morning, I was at the MD Anderson Cancer Research Center. And I was there till the end of 2003. And uh, I was misdiagnosed with cancer. I had a tumor in the left uh, occipital region of my brain. I uh, had neurocystic sarcosis. Coming back from that scare... To make it to Athens took a mammoth task and then to be seated and get to the semi-finals comfortably, not to lose a set until the semifinals, and then to lose to an unorthodox doubles pair of Schuttler and Kiefer, two singles players in the semis, was the first uh, blow. There was a real body blow. And then to lose to the Croats again. After losing to the Croats, Ivan and Pirpich in Barcelona to lose to Lubicic and Ančić Croats again after having two match points for the medal. Uh, it was just crushing and then after that uh, in Sydney to draw Woodford and Woodbridge the local favorites in Australia after carrying the flag in the opening ceremony to draw the top seeds Woodford Woodbridge and lose to them in 2000 was one thing and then subsequently with uh, Sanya Mirza at the London Olympics uh, to lose a chance to win a bronze uh, to win a medal in mixed doubles. Um, was also heartbreaking
6: and just to end on a on a happier note um, (laughs) what have been some of your favorite olympic memories and
7: experiences
6: off the court perhaps um do you always stay in the village and
7: wow man you're giving me goosebumps now dude and it's hot and humid in india wow (laughs) where do i start the la olympics was very significant because my dad's younger brother went to the la olympics and came back with tons of memorabilia, towels, mugs, uh, Olympic memorabilia. For me, as a young boy, you know, in uh, uh, with the the LA Olympics memorabilia that motivated me so much. I have got memorabilia from every single Olympics from 1988 onwards, and uh, I drink my tea in those mugs. I, I still use those towels uh, when I bathe uh, to motivate me, or in the gym. Uh, man, where do I where do I go from there? Meeting Muhammad Ali. Who lit the Olympic torch uh, in at Atlanta, um, and uh, meeting him in the Olympic Village, and uh, Muhammad Ali's handshake—just one hand engulfed my whole hand. I think his his fingers touched ends while he wrapped his hand around mine, shaking my hand. You know, uh, was something else. Watching him quiver with Parkinson's while he lit that Olympic torch, which actually started the magic for me in Atlanta in the opening ceremony. You know, and because uh, I just learned that uh, Pete Sampras was not going to come. Um, right up to uh, to actually having my Olympic torch from Atlanta, you know, which sits in my house today, or, or, or having torches from multiple Olympics that I've played that remind me every morning when I wake up and I walk past them that I conduct myself as an Olympic champion. It's right up to the dream team when I met Michael Jordan and, and uh, Magic Johnson and took their autographs in Barcelona, right to, um, you know going back to a Michael Phelps and watching him in Brazil, in Rio, you know, in the, in the races that he, he raced and won medals in, right to uh, Indo-Olympic village, interacting with the great athletes, uh, like a Neymar, you know, when he played uh, in, in the Olympics and won. Uh, man, the moments are just incredible. I could, we could, this interview would go on for <laughs> the rest of the week. But, uh, you know, uh, thank you for taking me through memory lane. And uh, for me, I'm just a blessed young kid from India who's uh, been fortunate to have amazing parents who have motivated me and given me an opportunity and, and an environment in a country like India, which did not have infrastructure when I grew up, to emulate them and to be you know an Olympic champion. And I'm very grateful to the Olympic movement for for the opportunities that I've had. And if I do get a chance to up my world record from seven to eight olympics it'll be my greatest honor
2: okay you'd show a bit more enthusiasm leander mate i mean
4: <laughs> oh dear
1: <laughs>
2: um uh, yeah i mean not using uh, olympic memorabilia towels is obviously where i'm going wrong in the gym that's where i'm insufficiently inspired obviously
5: I mean, come on, Catherine, up your game. I mean, you know, you're talking about how you'd always have your medal about your person. Well, Leander has the entire Olympic shop <laughs> and <laughs> wears yeah. it on a, he on drinks, a daily basis. drinking
2: tea, Matt, uh, out of Olympic memorabilia mugs.
5: Yes, you can, didn't make me a coffee to, from
2: an
6: Olympic mug.
2: Can I come to that social event, please?
6: Cause, <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also didn't expect to find out when and where he'd been conceived. That was... Um, <laughs> that was a place I didn't think the interview would go Um,
2: is there anything you don't now know about Leander Pays
5: (laughs) (laughs) nothing important
6: Um, I mean mean, there are only 13 Olympians who have competed in more Olympic games than Leander Pays he's got the record for tennis and there's only 13 across other sports who've got more and I was looking through the list with with our friend and colleague Woolley and she pointed out that you know, you could argue that seven is the limit in terms of athletes who are both standing up and moving because um, there's a lot of there's sailing, shooting, rowing, equestrian or there are athletes who have participated in no sports with eight, nine or ten um olympic participations but seven is kind of the limit if you're if you're moving around on your feet so if leander pays somehow can can make it to eight this was this he planned to have his final year on tour you, this year he's saying an he eighth. needs
2: needs to become a horse rider
6: <laughs> no i think he just needs to get through coronavirus and get to <laughs> right. uh, get to tokyo 2021 and then uh, then he will have that claim himself but, um, I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. He's he's certainly certainly a motivating factor for him, although he's in a wait-and-see stage he, he, at
5: the moment. He makes you want to go out for a run right now, doesn't he? Well, he, he? makes I me mean, want what? to take
2: up archery. <laughs> 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 and, yeah. Um, what a storyteller. Oh, have, yeah, just... Just amazing. Let's um, let's take a moment to bask in the Leander Pays glow, shall we? And uh, yeah, as predicted, we're going to need uh, one podcast per Olympics, I think. So we'll leave you in that ethereal Olympic glow created by um, Atlanta bronze medalist Leander Pays. And we'll be back with you uh, for our next episode about the 2000 Sydney Olympics, which by all accounts seems to have been... Quite a fun one. I'd have liked to have been at the Sydney Games. I'd have liked to have been at blooming all of them. But anyway, I was busy at school and other faff. Um, so, yeah, enjoy. Hope you have enjoyed uh, our Reminiscer Package about the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And we'll be back next time with Sydney. See you then.